So we're, we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke was the longest book in the New Testament. We've been working our way through it sort of on and off uh, since December. And as we've said before, the, the, the book of Luke is, is uh, really devoted to this idea that, that the Spirit of God is bringing about the kingdom of God. That, that God is working in this world to bring about this new way of living, this new way to relate to one another, this new way um, to know ourselves and our place in the world. And, and Jesus do, and the Spirit is doing that primarily through the person and work of Jesus. But really that begs the question for us readers, especially for those who aren't familiar maybe with the scriptures, to say, well, well who is this man, Right? Who, who is this Jesus? Who is this guy that we're dealing with? Who are we really dealing with here when we hear and we read and we see stories of this man, Jesus? And in fact, this question of who is Jesus is an important one in the Gospel of Luke. And over and over and over again, you see that someone in the story is regularly asking that question and saying, who, who is this guy? Or even Jesus himself turning it around and saying, who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? We, we see it as Jesus engages the scribes and the Pharisees in chapter 5. We see it with, with Jesus, uh, with the Pharisee and the prostitute in chapter 7. We see it with Herod. We see Jesus asking the crowds. We see him asking Peter, Zacchaeus. Over and over and again, this question comes up, who is this man? And that's an important question, right, church? It's the most important question that we'll ever ask, essentially, is what do we believe about this man? What do we know about this man? And what do we believe about him? And how will that relate to us in our real lives? And one of the ways that, uh, that, that Luke begins to teach us about who Jesus is, to answer that question about who Jesus is, is through these different stories of Jesus' power and authority, his divine power and divine authority in this world. You're sort of getting a glimpse. It's like he's peeling back the curtain a little bit, and we're seeing this kingdom. And so we see even from chapter 1, the story of, of Jesus divinely conceived, unlike any other person that's ever been born. In fact, his birth was praised by the angels in Luke chapter 2. When he, was, when he was just a child, his authoritative teaching in the synagogue, was they were just completely impressed. They were completely surprised and dumbfounded that this kid, this nobody from nowhere, could teach with such power and authority. Jesus even had the authority and the power to resist the devil in the wilderness in midst of this uh, fasting, in midst of being physically and emotionally weak. He resists the enemy. He has powers over demons. He casts out demons. He has power over the physical body to heal. He, had, he has this miracle over creation itself as he um, produces this miraculous catch of fish early on. We even see that he has authority over the Sabbath as he reinterprets that for his disciples. And then here at this point in chapter 8, we see another story, this other picture of his authority, even over the sea, this dangerous, forbidding sea. So let me read this passage, very familiar passage, just a few verses here in Luke 8, starting in verse 22. It says, One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and Jesus says to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out, they, they got in their boat, they sailed, and as they did, he fell asleep, Jesus fell asleep. 
and it says this windstorm came down on the lake and they were filled, they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and they woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke. And it just says very matter-of-factly, he rebuked the wind and the raging waters and they ceased. And there was calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And scripture tells us they were afraid and they marveled at this man saying to one another, who, who is this guy? That he can command even the winds and the water, the sea, and they obey. I got to teach us this morning about your authority and your power. God, we, we are people desperate for your power and authority in our lives. God, no matter what storm we may find ourselves in this morning, no matter what storm we may find ourselves in this year or maybe this decade, God, for some of us, God, help us to, this morning to see through the waves, to see through the water, to see through the wind and the storm to you. God, we need your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very familiar story, obviously. And this, uh, like the story we read last week, uh, the parable of the soils, it's also mentioned in all the synoptic gospels. It's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke as well. And the story here in the Gospel of Luke, it's interesting. It's, it's really in a series of stories back to back about Jesus's, uh, very specifically about his power and authority in this world, about him bringing about this very new kingdom. So he's, he's in this passage, he's stilling the storm, he's calming the water. Next we'll read about him healing this demoniac, casting out a demon. Then he'll, the story of him healing a woman and finally raising a young girl uh, from death. And with each page, as we read, with each of these stories, this, the person and the work and the kingdom of Jesus comes clearer and clearer into focus. We begin to get a greater and greater sense of who, who this man really is. And in only really four short verses, right, Luke tells us this very captivating, this very, in some ways, terrifying, uh, maybe in certain ways even confusing story of Jesus with his disciples. It's important for us to understand, because maybe many of us don't think of it this way, but in the ancient world, um, the sea, it, it represented evil. It represented destruction. It represented fear. It was, the, the ancients understood the sea as very terrifying. One, one commentator says that symbolically the sea has been perceived as, as a hostile and dangerous environment populated by um, these fantastic creatures like the gigantic Leviathan in the Bible, or the shark-like Isonade in Japanese mythology, or the ship-swallowing Kraken of North mythology. The sea is a terrifying place. One commentator in his book on uh, this passage, he says, From ancient times and in many cultures, these large bodies of water were believed to be the abode of evil spirits. They didn't know what was going on there beneath the surface, right? They, they were stirred up by storms. They were, they were often treacherous, and they would, they would crush and kill and destroy sailors. This, this belief was as old as the oldest stories in all the world. And it's interesting that even in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, there's a sense that at the very end, when, when God is basically restoring all things, and he's giving us this new and perfect home, it says in Revelation 21, 1, but the sea was no more. There's this idea, this symbol, that the sea is a terrifying 
place. It represents evil. It represents destruction. And yet the sea, obviously, for Jesus' disciples was a source of revenue, was a source of food, right? It was part of their sustenance. It was, it was their job. And some of these men that were in this boat with Jesus that day, these were fishermen, some of them. These were experienced men of the sea, right? They got it. They, were, they, they understood the danger. They understood the risk. They understood the vulnerability of being adrift on the water. And maybe even especially on the Sea of Galilee. I've been on the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee can be a very treacherous place. I know maybe several of us in this room have been there in Galilee. Ken Hughes, in his commentary on this, he says, It is a fact that inland waters, especially fresh inland waters, possess a unique treachery. Waves are often non-rhythmic and, they, and, and contradictory. Inland lakes are more vulnerable to, ge uh, to geography because instead of being surrounded by land like the oceans, they are surrounded by varying topography. And so they are subject to quick temperature changes, temperature inversions, and terribly violent changes in weather. So you can be on the Sea of Galilee and be at rest and be at peace, and a storm can come out of nowhere and overtake your boat. He continues, he says, though the Sea of Galilee is only, it's a relatively small body of water, relatively. It's only five miles wide, 13 miles long. Its perils are considerable. Due to its unique geography, the sea itself is an incredible distance below sea level. It's surrounded by these imposing mountains, deep ravines, and these ravines serve as gigantic funnels, you see, that bring hurricane-force winds, whirling winds down upon this lake, usually without any notice whatsoever. These gales are often strengthened by thermal buildup in the extremely low valley, and it sucks the cold air violently downward upon the boats. This is a scary place, right? The disciples got this. The, the, the disciples were very familiar with Galilee and the Sea of Galilee. Many of them were familiar uh, being on boats. They, were, they understood the risk. And yet the language that the gospel writers use here is that this was no ordinary storm. The storms are bad enough, but this storm was maybe no ordinary storm. Mark will use the language of, this was a great storm. Matthew uses the language and implies that it was a tornado there on the water. Luke, here, the passage that we just read, he'll say something like a, a storm of wind or a squall, literally a hurricane force wind. And of course, none of this surprised Jesus, right? None of this surprised Jesus, who had already demonstrated his sovereignty. He's demonstrated his foreknowledge. He's demonstrated his power, his authority to his disciples countless times before now. They had been with this man. They had seen him do these miraculous things. This wasn't a surprise. Let's consider for the moment, and hopefully this will be an encouragement to us, Jesus was not only sovereign over calming the storm, right? He was also sovereign over causing the storm. Or at the very least, right? Even if you won't concede to that, at the very least, he was sovereign in allowing the storm to occur. 
God is sovereign over every minute, over every speck of creation, over every bit of everything. He's not just the God who calms the storm sometimes. Every time. He's the God that allows it. And here he is asleep. He knew it was coming. He knew what was going on. And he's sleeping like a baby. He's not surprised when the storm comes. He's not, he's not in any way caught off guard when the storm comes. He's not unaware when the storm comes. He's not uninterested even when the storm comes. He's not, he's not put off. And he is certainly not panicking. What's he doing? He's asleep. He's asleep. Cool as a cucumber, right? But the disciples who had actually already seen Jesus heal, they'd seen Jesus cast out demons, they'd seen Jesus um, even demonstrate his power over this uh, miraculous catch of fish for them, they were utterly and completely terrified. Men of the sea, terrified. It says in verse 24, and they went and they woke Jesus up and they say, Master, Master, we are perishing. One commentator says, this is language of extreme terror. We don't get this as much in the English, but from the Greek, this is this, is this overwhelming expression, we are about to die. They're exposed, they're vulnerable, they're insecure, and they're afraid. Can anybody relate? Anybody relate to that? In, in the version of the story in the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, uh, he gives um, an even more nuanced um, uh, definition or a more nuanced response of the disciples to this, this storm. Uh, the reaction and what they say in, in Mark, the way he records it, is when they go to Jesus, the disciples don't just say, Master, Master, we are perishing. They say, Master, Master, do you even care? that we're perishing. Can anybody relate? Anybody ever feel like that? Why didn't Jesus prepare them for this? Wouldn't that make a lot of sense in some ways? Why, why, didn't, why didn't he give them just a, a little bit of a heads up? Why didn't he say, look guys, look, before we get on the boat, maybe as they're loading up their nets, maybe as they're getting ready to get on this boat, he says, look guys, a storm's coming. A storm's coming, but it's going to be fine. I'm, I'm going to calm it with a single word. Things are going to be okay. It's going to be fine. He didn't do that. He falls asleep, and they panic. Can anybody relate? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be better, folks? Let's just all agree on this. Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't Jesus seem at least kinder if we had some warning before being diagnosed with stage 4 cancer? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? That'd be helpful. Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't, wouldn't Jesus be, be kinder, to, sort of more emotionally in tune if, if we were promised an eventual positive outcome in the midst of a child's rebellion? That'd be helpful, wouldn't it, in the midst of it? That's the kind of stuff we need to know, Jesus. I wish you would have told me. Maybe just a little heads up, Jesus, would be nice before our finances collapse. Just a heads up. 
Jesus, maybe just a little word of encouragement, just a little word of encouragement that things will work out when we discover our spouse's affair. He doesn't do that, though. He sleeps. He's in this boat and he's sleeping as his disciples are heading into a storm that would make them fear for their lives. And their response is probably similar to ours, right? Do you even care, Jesus? Do you even care about what I'm going through? Do you even care what I'm experiencing? Do you even care, Jesus, about how hard this moment is, about how hard this season of life is, about how hard this relationship is, this situation? Whatever it is, Jesus, do you even care about what's going on? Sometimes, maybe often for us, that Jesus' love, Jesus' care, Jesus' even awareness of us sometimes seems non-existent. He just seems so far away. He just seems so silent. He seems asleep. But I want to challenge us this morning. Maybe there's something to the silence. Maybe, maybe there's a purpose to the struggle, right? Maybe there's meaning in the storm, the, the storm that Jesus brings to us, the storm that Jesus brought to his disciples. One writer says this, though the disciples had no way of knowing it during those terrible moments, this miserable storm was a divinely appointed vehicle to teach them about God and about God's power in their lives. He's teaching them. Jesus is a consummate teacher, right? This is what he does. And yet, man, what a hard lesson. That's not a lesson I want. When it's, when it's my kid or my body or my money or my relationships, right? That's not the lesson I want. I just want the word that things are going to be okay. I don't want the sleeping Jesus. There's an anonymous little poem, this prayer. That the writer says this, I ask the Lord that I might grow. That's a dangerous prayer, folks. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way almost drove me to despair. Have you guys been there before? That, that I think very often the way that Jesus teaches us, that Jesus transforms us, that Jesus sanctifies us, makes us more and more into the image of his son, that he that transforms us uh, as people who he's created us to be is through the valley, is through the storm. It's interesting in the, in the, in the book of Psalms, um, the Psalms are organized in such a way, many of the Psalms are organized in such a way um, that I've heard it categorized as psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, and psalms of new orientation, right? So it's as though you start somewhere and you kind of know who God is, you engage him at some level, you're oriented, right? But then comes something terrible. Then comes this, the enemies surrounding you. Then comes fear and anxiety. Then comes insecurity and vulnerability. There comes the unknown, the shale. And you're disoriented. 
Like, you don't know who you are anymore. You don't know who God is anymore. You don't know how any of this is going to work out anymore. But, but you have to go through these disorienting psalms to get to the place of reorientation, new orientation. You got to go through the valley to get to the mountaintop. You got to go through Good Friday to get to Easter, right? This is the way that Jesus, Jesus uses the storm. Jesus uses the struggle. Jesus uses the fear, this, this moment. Even the silence to transform us. In this story, Jesus rebukes the waves and immediately the storm ceases. And of course, Jesus is sovereign over the water, right? Even in, the, even in just the book of Luke, we understand that he has power and authority unlike any other person. But even in the Psalms, we read repeatedly, even the passage that Marcus read this morning. Psalm 89, it says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When it rises, when the waves overcome me, you tell them, stand still. He, he could have done this at any time. You understand? At any point in this journey, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and the water would have been as still as can be. In fact, he could have prevented this storm altogether. And yet here in his grace, here in his mercy, there's a book by Sheldon Van Auken and the title is A Severe Mercy. Have you ever experienced a severe mercy? This is a severe mercy, this storm that he's bringing these people through, that in his grace, he brings the storm and he quiets it. And then he asks his disciples this, this pretty powerful question in verse 25, where is your faith? Where is your faith? He, he, he's, he's literally asking them to localize their faith. No, where is it? Where, is your, where are you putting your faith? Is it in the sturdiness of your boat? Is it, is it in the calmness of the sea now? Is it in your experience as fishermen? What, what, where is your faith exactly? Do you not think that I, have, I could have kept you safe inside of a hurricane? Where is your faith? Even now, disciples, is your faith only in my calming of the storm for you? Or is it in me directly as Lord of the storm? Church, where is your faith? Faith is, is a word that could be pretty easily substituted uh, for trust. What, what are you trusting in, ultimately? What are you banking on? In, in the Gospel of John, Jesus um, asks his disciples in, in John 16, he says, he says, well, do you now believe after he'd done all of these things? He says, do you believe? Because the hour is coming. The hour is coming. And indeed, he says, it has come now when, when you will be scattered. This is just before he's, he's handed over to the authorities and the disciples scatter away and, and deny him and betray him. Each of you will go to your own home and you'll leave me all alone. And yet he says, I'm not alone. My Father is with me. In fact, I have said these things to you that in me you may actually have peace. Because 
guys, you need to listen to this. In this world, there will be tribulation. There's a storm coming. Whether you've experienced it now or not, this is a life of storm. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. You got nothing to be afraid of. There is storms coming, but man, that war's won. That war's won. And this is a twofold promise, right? That's that's sort of the tension here. Jesus saying, on the one hand, the storm's coming. But I've got it. You see, it's both. Right? We, we would love to just dismiss the first part, right? We would love to just be told, I've got this. That's not all Jesus says here. He doesn't just say, I'm in control. He doesn't just say, I'm sovereign. He doesn't just say, I have all the power. He doesn't say, I'm going to make everything right. He says, storms are coming for you. It's both. Michael Wilcock, in his commentary, says, Jesus may not give the kind of victory we expect. But he will always overcome our trouble. His answer in trying circumstances may be relief or it may be endurance. His answer in illness may be health and restoration or it may be courage instead. He may plan a rescue from death's door or permit bereavement and give new hope with it. But, and he quotes from Romans 8, but in all things, in all things, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The same God who brings a storm, the same God who, who calms a storm is the God who is present with us, the God who loves us. But he may not answer in the way we want. That's part of the storm, Right? Part of the storm is not having the answer. Because, you see, we must, we must not set limits on Jesus' deliverance. That's what we want to do. We want to set the terms of his service to us. We, we, we cannot, we must not set expectations on the terms of Jesus' rescue operation in our lives. And you know what? Thank God. Thank God we can't. Thank God we don't set those limits or expectations on what Jesus, on the way Jesus is going to fix this storm in our lives, the way that Jesus is going to calm these raging waters in our lives. And the reason that it's good news that we can't expect that, the reason that it's good news that we don't have the power to set those limits and expectations is because we don't know everything. How terrible would it be? Consider for a moment. How terrible would it be if we had the power in our limited view, in our limited experience, to dictate, Jesus, here's how you need to fix this. Think about what we would miss. Think about what we would get wrong. Think about all the things that we don't know. Think about all the variables that we can't consider, and yet, and yet we can submit to Jesus and say, just do, you calm this storm in whatever way you want, or at least just be with me in the hurricane, because I don't know everything. 
There's a lot I don't know. And even though I think I would rather you pull this thing off in this way, God, I know you know. He's a God who's trustworthy in a storm, amen? There was this uh, man uh, in Chicago in the sort of mid-1800s. His name is uh, Horatio Spafford. Now, this, this man, he was a friend of the evangelist D.L. Moody. And this man, Spafford, he was a, he was a wealthy man, um, and he had invested heavily in real estate um, just before the Chicago fire of, I think, 1871. And he lost all of his holdings. Just before that, he had suffered, he and his wife had suffered the death of their young son. And so he was just gutted emotionally, financially wiped out. And he decides to send his, he had four daughters and he was still married. He, he, he decided to send his wife and daughters, they were going to go to Europe. But something came up where he couldn't go. But he sent his wife and his daughters ahead and he said, I'm going to meet you there. And while uh, on their way to Europe, the ship sinks. And all four of his daughters die. His, his wife survives miraculously. And so he gets on a boat and he heads to Wales where his wife and the other survivors of the shipwreck are being held. And while Spafford is on the boat heading to meet his wife, after losing his son, after losing his four daughters, after losing his money, he writes these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. That's perspective, church. That's, that's having your eyes so sturdily fixed on Christ that no matter how loud the winds get, no matter how painful the crushing waves on your soul become, no matter how dark the skies, you trust that he's got it. Brandy sent me an article this week um, thinking that it was you know, kind of appropriate to the sermon. And the, the writer of this article, his name is Marshall Siegel, he says, if we expect peace in this age to always feel peaceful, we will rarely experience real peace. Let me read this to you again. If we expect peace in this age to always feel peaceful, we will rarely experience real peace. The, the, the kind that meets reality and adversity head on, right? Because the storm's coming. It's not always going to feel peace. Our circumstances will not always be peaceful. He says, if we never really feel any tension, if, we're, if there's never any urgency, if there's never any dependence, if there's never any desperation in our peace, then we're probably experiencing something other than real peace from Jesus. Because the peace that Jesus gives, it pierces through all of the fear and anxiety and vulnerability. It might feel peaceful for the moment, but it isn't peace our souls need. Look to Jesus this morning. Look to the one who has defeated Satan, sin, and death on our behalf. 
Look, look, to, look to Jesus, not to, the, not to the calm skies, even when things are going well. Or to the storm. Don't fixate on your well-fashioned boat. Or even the water pouring in the hole, right? Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. He is Lord of the storm in calmness or calamity. In a leisurely day at the beach or in the center of a hurricane, he is Lord.